You're listening to the Yoga Inspiration Podcast with me, your host, Kino McGregor. I created this series to keep you inspired to get on the mat every day so that you can practice yoga and change your world, starting from the inside out, one breath at a time. Thanks so much for listening. Your support means everything to me. Hi, everyone. It's Kino here. Thanks so much for joining for the Yoga Inspiration Show. I'm here with Yo Avarin of the Unlearn Project, who will be moderating our Ashtanga Intersections, Exploring Racism as a Spiritual Obstacle event and panel discussion happening very soon. So Ro, I'm super excited to have you on this show and to dive into some of the topics and that we'll be discussing in the panel discussion and the very important work that you do. So thanks so much for joining. Thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to uh, our conversation today as well as moderating the panel. So I think a good place to get started is, you know, uh, how how did you come to do the work that you do? And would you share with everyone kind of what that's about in the world? Sure. Um, So I came to the work that I do through a number of avenues uh, that seem to sort of keep popping up and leading back to where I am, if that makes any sense. (laughs) I've always been. drawn to teaching um, with, a, with a deeper purpose of healing, undergirding that desire to teach. And one sort of branch of that calling led me to yoga at a young age and then to teaching yoga later. Um, and another branch led me to academic pursuits, first in the sciences uh, with a desire to eventually find myself in a surgical suite. <laughs> but uh, eventually sort of branching off to literature, which I um, ended up uh, in graduate school in the United States. Um, I'm Canadian, um, but I ended up in grad school in the U.S. studying English literature, and I focused on Afro-diasporic literature, um, particularly texts that focused on exploring apocalypse and post-apocalypse, troubling the boundaries of gender and race and time and all of these different things. And I spent uh, through that work a lot of time with texts uh, written on critical race theory, intersectionality, intersectional feminism, black radical feminism, indigeneity and indigenous sovereignty, queer theory, social justice pedagogy, the whole range of things. And all of that sort of led me when I left graduate school to try to put all of that knowledge into some kind of praxis um, because I felt something was missing in uh, in academia, I didn't want to sort of step into that world and and get cut off from the rest of the world in, in a bunch of ways, which often happens in academia, particularly to this kind of work. Um, so I wanted to leave the academy, but I ended up back in the academy um, as staff in university administration at a university back in Canada. And I was hired into one of these sort of typical lower level administrative diversity and inclusion, quote unquote, positions um, where one is expected to serve as a subject matter expert and a facilitator and a leadership and PR and policy consultant and fulfill mentorship roles uh, to Black, Indigenous and people of color, students and faculty and staff. Um, and often as one of the only non-white people in the administration. These are sort of very typical roles that are popping up in so many different organizations all over the world now, particularly in the wake of 
of uh, June of 2020. And uh, anyway, so I was one of these people um, and I, you know, was creating training programs, workshops, community spaces, a yoga space for queer and trans folks, uh, as well as fulfilling all of these administrative tasks um, and sort of consulting upper level leadership in, in the university for as to how to uh, sort of incorporate social justice principles into their work, which they were very rarely interested in actually doing. Um, and so when I left that position, I was extremely burnt out and I was um, sort of used up, I guess, in a way. And I needed, I needed a change from doing that kind of work within an institution, um, within the sort of strictures that institutional and organizational um, environments often put on this kind of work. And uh, yeah, so I needed a break from that, but I also wanted to continue doing my work in a way that preserved my well-being as a Black person um, and allowed me to do my work in a way that resonated and had sort of um, lived impact um, for the you know, positive impact for the communities that I was interested in serving. And so I founded um, my consultancy Unlearn project in the spring of 2018. And since then, I've slowly been developing it, um, now based in Sápmir in northern Norway, doing work with a variety of different kinds of organizations all over the world and in many sectors. Um, and I've kind of made an effort to weave all of that learning that I did in, in graduate school and in my undergraduate um, time um, into my work uh, in a resonant way that I was not able to do within an institution. So I kind of weaved in trauma-informed praxis and um, intersectionality as a methodology. I center uh, decolonial praxis and environmental justice and disability justice into my work um, and sort of undergirding all of that, a, a very mindful approach to unlearning and communicating and addressing social justice issues um, at the individual level, at the societal level, community level, and at the structural and institutional level. So that's how I came to my work. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Thanks for sharing. That's a big journey. I, I want to dive into a lot of the, a, a lot of the, the work that you do, but I have a kind of practical question first which is how this is a big geographic kind of change. If you're from Canada, studied in the U.S., worked at a university, and then now you're in northern Norway, and I think you said in the Arctic Circle. So, mm -hmm. how, so I guess I have two questions. How did that? How, how does that geographical journey happen? And how did that? How does that play into the work that you do? And how does it feel to sit in what is probably a very remote location and have a very kind of hands-on and engaged uh, kind of profession and, and livelihood and passion in the world? Mm, very good set of questions. Um, how did that set of geographical shifts happen? Um, I mean, I was born and raised in, um, in Treaty 7 territory in uh, Turtle Islands or Calgary. I was born in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Um, and raised in Alberta um, and some in Saskatchewan and uh, up until the end of my undergraduate was there um, and wanted to so what took me to the U.S. was my um, 
interest and investment in Afro-diasporic literature and the sort of dearth of available supervisors in Canadian universities. Um, there, are, there were some at the time, but not so many, and not so many programs focused on um, African diasporic literatures um, or cultures at all in Canada. Um, so I, I went to the States for that reason, um, among others. And uh, from there, you know, had a, a series of very interesting experiences with, with the sort of academic system in the U.S. and uh, what it was like to to focus on the work that I was doing within an English literature program that said they were interested in supporting that type of work. But in practice, um, you know, there were, there were quite a few folks in that program, um, particularly black folks and particularly black women and non-binary folks who struggled to find support for their work. Um, And so a, a, a sort of piece of academia was exposed to me that I, didn't sit well with me to say the least. Um, and so I left prior to, I was in a PhD program and I left prior to, um, dissertating, um, and ended up sort of going back to what was familiar and what was known. So going back to Alberta and and ending up there for a few years, um, in that position that I'd mentioned before. So that was kind of, it was, it was very much sort of like moving for work in a way, um, what took me to the U S but, I think it was also extremely important for me to experience um, Blackness in that particular national context um, and uh, to, yeah, to experience what, was, what I had been reading about and researching, um, but experiencing in the Canadian context, which has a number of, of important differences from the U.S. context. Um, and then what took me to Northern Norway... <laughs> Uh, that is that is a less sort of logical story. I had um, I had met Wambuin Jugana Raisanan, who will be a part of the panel um, that we're holding. Uh, I had met her um, in northern Sweden, where her and her partner Pat were holding a retreat and I had met a few Norwegian folks, ended up going and visiting them the next year, somehow ended up in Northern Norway and traveled to this little archipelago called Lofoten and fell in love with it completely. Just one of these very deep and resounding connections with the place um, that in my many travels over the years, I had not felt before. And so I decided to listen to that and, uh, come back up some years later. And, and um, since I had built Unlearn Project to be remote, um, it made sense to kind of go where I felt the most well and the most centered and stable. Um, so yeah, that's what brought me here and, and why I am residing here now. Um, and as I said, yeah, so in, in terms of what it's like to do this work you know, from such a remote and isolated location, um, when it is such relational work that requires a lot of uh, community and relationship building in order to do it well. Um, one of the things that that the experience teaching at the universe or at teaching and and uh, in the sort of administrative side of things in the university taught me was. Um, 
how difficult it is to center our well-being when we are doing that kind of work, especially as Black folks who are in those types of roles, um, where, you know, if you are, for example, teaching a workshop on social justice 101 uh, to an audience of staff and faculty at a university, and you are faced with questions, um, challenges to the work that you're presenting, challenges to the work that, that you are saying is vital for this world to be a better place, um, microaggressions, macroaggressions, et cetera. These are, you know, you're, you're feeling them in a very embodied way. And it's a, it's a major and very physical and mental challenge to your well-being to be in those spaces physically. Um, and so while I still do um, hold physical sessions and trainings and workshops and consulting um, from time to time, I do prioritize doing remote work because I feel like it is the way that I can do this work and stay well. Um, Cause there's a lot of sort of energetically, it's a, it's a very sort of uh, tenuous and in, in many ways dangerous type of work to engage in as a person who, you know, ends up fighting to prove their own humanity in those spaces um, while you're trying to do your professional work. Um, so yeah, so I try to, after that experience, center, you know, what is what is going to help me be the most well and grounded so that I can step into this work in the fullest and most effective way possible. Uh, for me, that is being in a place where I feel nourished um, on land that feels, that I feel like holds me. And, um, and uh, yeah, have sort of, boundaries around how I engage in this work and, and where and all of those types of things. So the isolation is necessary. <laughs> mm. Well, that makes sense. I haven't been that far up in Norway, but the places that I've been in are on Nissen and, and, you know, a little bit north of Oslo and just the, the spectacular nature. I can totally see how that could be really a, a really important healing counterpoint to this very intensive engagement with the world that brings up so much stuff on so many different levels. So I totally get that. And, uh, you know, when I was in Norway, uh, the past two times I've been in Norway, I tried to convince my husband to maybe we should buy some land there. And my husband's response oh. was, you know, you know, I'm Danish, right? That was his response. <laughs> right. We'll visit Norway. Got it. <laughs> I see. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, it's a complicated relationship <laughs> between Danes and Norwegians. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, so, so I, I think it might be useful for people to kind of unpack some of the, or to, to dive in deeper into some of the, 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 the phrases, even the phrase mm -hmm. of your work, you know, the unlearn project, you know, so, like, what does it mean to unlearn and like, what's that about? And, um, you know, I feel like there are these words that kind of get thrown around, uh, even on, in, in social media and in articles and things like that. And, 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 and be, I think it's very useful for people to, to know what it means. Absolutely. And I mean, I think like with many other terms, um, there are different takes on, on what it means, um, it has been interesting to see this term used more and more often, especially since June of 2020 with um, all of the protests inspired by or sort of created by the, the uh, situation around George Floyd's murder. 
uh, that happened all over the world, suddenly everybody was talking about unlearning things and relearning. And um, it was interesting to, you know, having started this consultancy and, and called it Unlearn Project a couple of years before that, um, and having been, you know, reading about unlearning and, and writing about unlearning for so many years, it was interesting to, to see that term sort of come up and not really be engaged with <laughs> in more than a superficial level. But um, for me, unlearning is kind of a collection of things. Um, it is sort of a process of identifying the moments and the periods and, and the patterns of misinformation and of selective information that we've all acquired over time or been fed over the course of, of these lives that we've lived within systems of oppression. Um, so for me, it, unlearning means identifying those things, those moments, those periods, those patterns, uh, and making a very conscious and, and wholehearted decision to start questioning those processes um, and to continue that process of questioning indefinitely. So a core piece of, of unlearning for me is understanding this work as ongoing, never ending really, um, even especially for, for myself in the role that I often occupy as a teacher and consultant. Um, and I think it also means that sort of after identifying those things that we fully commit to that very hard and often dark and sometimes terrifying and sad and shattering work of, of undoing the things that we have learned in our lives, undoing patterns of thought, and ultimately literally rewiring our brains to think differently about the world around us, to think differently about history, to think differently about ourselves and our places in the world. Um, and it involves a lot of accountability in that process as well to, to yourself, to your community, to a larger global community. Um, so I think it is... Uh, yeah, it's a it's a process of sort of reckoning and, and uncovering the ways in which we've we've been uh, duped by selective histories. Um, yeah. So, in the mindset of unlearning, who do you trust? You know, so this is interesting for me because I feel like a big part of the, the questioning of authority and the questioning of history is you know the story of the victors or his story it ends up with a situation of, 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 as you said, responsibility and accountability. But at the same time, there's this question of, well, who's the authority then? Who do I trust? And people don't necessarily want to point at themselves. And I've seen it go in two different ways where um, there is someone that takes on the mantle of questioning and deconstructing and, and, and kind of taking authorities down off of their pedestals. And then they end up kind of going down a, a, a sort of rabbit hole of misinformation where it's almost like they've co-opted the principles of unlearning to then re-empower a kind of, uh, you know, like false narrative of, of harm or the, uh, the other option goes on where that unlearning becomes self-empowering to reclaim lost agency and potentially to heal the harms of the past. But like, where does, like, how does that sit? And, and, and like when you're, and how does, how do you, how, like, how do you navigate that? Not you as a person, maybe like we as a society, like mm. how, how does something that, that's, that, that has this intention of actually deconstructing power structures sometimes end up, either reforming equally harmful power structures or 
you know, ending up kind of recreating harm? Mm. That's a really good question and, and a very important one to to reflect on when it comes to this type of work in general. Um, when I see those types of things happening, sort of the, the worst case scenario that you described, I think of, you know, an unlearning that is incomplete. I think of, or I should say a process that is incomplete. So uh, somebody who has uh, approached this unlearning process as something that can be completed so I've done the thing. I've I've read a book or three or five, and now I'm finished. I got the information that I need, and I questioned the things that were most comfortable to question in myself and in my community. And now I'm done. I'm going to go out into the world um, thinking that I've done the work rather than understanding this is an ongoing process and something that we will have to reckon with for you know, the rest of our lives, once we sort of wake up to the fact that we, that, you know, our history um, has been created in such an enormously biased way, you know, what other option do we have then to question it constantly, to try and, and obtain information from, you know, as close to the actual source within a community as possible to, to question, you know, the, the motives and the impetus behind the writing of certain types of, of history or certain school, uh, creation of certain philosophies or, you know, what have you. I think, you know, I think, I, I think of unlearning as something that we do in order to take in new information that contradicts that's the things that we've been sort of indoctrinated within and and that have been wired into us through constant societal exposure um and so we have an option to go through this process of deep self-inquiry to to discern what we need to do and undo within ourselves before we can successfully soak up that new information right and if we take in the new without cleaning out the old we're very often going to be doing exactly what you described in terms of like layering, you're basically layering something lovely over something rotten, rot spreads. It's extremely powerful. It usually wins. Um, It's this very sort of natural process. If we don't, you know, have a space that is conducive to something new taking root. So, you know, why not spend the time to clean house a bit and make space for what you're relearning and taking in? Because if you do not do that work initially, that harder work initially, and you do it in a superficial way, uh, or you do it in a way that feels good all the time, which I think folks are really looking for and hoping for in a process of, you know, uh, acting towards justice and, and that kind of thing. They want it to feel good and they want it to feel firming at all times. Um, but what you're doing in that process is risking that your old patterns and habits and the ways in which you've been wired societally, um, and all of these sort of unexplored and and often implicit issues and biases will rear their heads through this overlay of the things that you've just learned. Um, and so absolutely these new learnings can then be weaponized um, often in, in order to retain those feelings of safety and security that those old, old patterns often give us. Um, and so then, you know, we end up in situations where mm, the tools that have been created to work towards social justice are 
co-opted in order to undo it, right? Uh, undo efforts that have been made. Um, and folks may not even be conscious of that process happening within themselves. They might not even be conscious of, of acting in those ways. Um, but without, you know, doing that deeper unlearning process and engaging with it in an ongoing way, that's a really real possibility of, of what can happen. And in, in terms of sort of how to balance that or how to guard against it, I think that's where community comes in. I think that's where um, being mindful in the way that we communicate with one another, mindfully calling one another in and out <laughs> about certain things, having a community around you who's going to check you on your stuff um, and, and call you into a conversation when they see you going in a direction where you might be stepping back into older patterns. I think that's where community becomes really, really important. Um, but ultimately, you know, I don't have a, a great answer for, you know, this is exactly how we, how we prevent, um, these <clears throat> methods from being co-opted. Um, I wish that I had an answer for that, but my only one is, is community so far. <laughs> no, thank you. I, I think there are a couple of interesting, a, a couple of really, really interesting and very important points in what you said. And I was going to ask, you know, why, why do we need to unlearn? But I think you just answered that. And I just want to highlight and kind of amplify what you said in that the idea of, of learning kind of creating a garden and then, uh, you know, before, before going in and planting a bunch of new stuff to remove the old. And you talked about people not necessarily wanting to sit with discomfort. And I feel like, especially in the spiritual path and yoga path, one of the biggest, and maybe also in life, you know, one of the biggest discomforts that people sit with is that open feeling of emptiness, the not knowing space to just be in a space of, I don't know what's right or wrong. I don't know how to act. I don't know, you know, whether this thing I learned in school is true or not. I don't know if what my parents told me is true. I, I this, this, this not knowing is deeply uncomfortable. So I can see how important it is for everyone to kind of, you know, get into that space of being willing to not know. And, and this probably is also why people reach for fast absolutism in any, any kind of superficial work that they might do under the banner of social justice work immediately to just say, this is right and this is wrong and you're wrong because that knowing it brings up comfortability again rather than this, this space of unlearning and deconstructing and then just sitting in that space of, I don't know, for a little bit mm -hmm. before just, you know, like new patterns are, are, are grabbed on. And the other thing that I wanted to, um, uh, I really, really, really kind of just highlight and, and amplify again to make sure that everybody really hears it is this idea of completion because this is something that comes up again in the yoga practice is like, well, when am I getting there? You know, when am I complete? When have I learned it? You know, if I'm going to do this, this pose, then now am I enlightened? You know, now have I learned it? Am I good? Am I done? And in that way, this idea of, okay, well now I've, I've unlearned this. So now I'm done. I don't need to do any more social justice work. I can just go back to my, my life and my job and I'm check the box of good personhood and kind of move on. So I really like this analogy that that maybe many spiritual practitioners, yoga practitioners could take that this, that the work of unlearning and the work of social justice very much like yoga is never complete. It's never like now you've arrived and here's your badge of graduation and now you're done. Like, you never, it's like a constant practice, perhaps the same way yoga is a constant practice. 
So along the, and I just wanted to amplify that for everybody who's listening to make sure that they really, that they hear that and draw the connection between the work that you're doing and then the, the spiritual practice. So I guess the next place I'd love for us to dive into is the intersection of uh, social justice and spiritual practice. So in this kind of contemporary world where there are many, many Western students who are practicing spiritual traditions that come from the ancient wisdom of the East, how does that intersection make it critical for the yoga practitioners or meditation practitioners, or any spiritual practitioner that, that isn't of the origin culture to um, unlearn uh, various modes of, of thoughts of colonial thinking or even post-colonial thinking that may be influencing how they interact with these sacred traditions? So why, in other words, why do yoga practitioners need to bother with unlearning? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think you've, you've answered that already <laughs> in a lot of ways. Um, no, I mean, I, I really appreciated your analogy of the garden, um, which, which prompts me to, to make a little bit of an amendment to, you know, I think I said something about cleaning, cleaning house before you, you, you know, try to plant something new, mixing metaphors. But I think, you know, the detritus, the, all of the, the rot and, and, everything that is sort of left behind that we often do clear away, you know, thinking about um, sustainable farming practices, we actually don't want to clear that away. We need that. We need that for the health of the soil. We need that. We need to grow in soil that has that detritus that has, you know, um, recycled it, recreated it into something new. And so I think the unlearning process and, and, the process of being accountable through unlearning involves facing all of those things that you need to unlearn and understanding them as a part of your own history or your society's history, your community's history, and something that should not be, you know, cleaned off and, and forgotten about, but understood as a part of this, whatever tapestry that is you. Um, so I think that's a, the, the gardening metaphor is, is really lovely in in that sense. Um, because we're not trying to erase anything that we've experienced or erase ways that we felt ways that we have acted, et cetera. We're trying to be accountable for them. We're trying to, you know, understand them as a part of our progression, um, and, and figure out a way to learn from them. So they are going to be ever present, um, in that, you know ongoing process. Um, in terms of why unlearning is, is sort of very important for yoga practitioners, everything that you said, right? Um, I think that yoga practitioners are already sort of ideally set up to do this kind of work. They're already diving deep as long as they're understanding the practice of yoga to be deeper than the physical, right? Um, they are diving deep. And so if we dive deep within ourselves without an understanding um, that, you know, kind of monsters may live in that deep and, and some of those monsters are not ours. They're products of our upbringings, our psychosocial political environments. Um, they do not necessarily belong by our sides on a path that centers social justice or that centers, um, any of the sort of enlightenment that we're hoping for through a yoga practice or the, the peace or non-attachment that we're hoping for through a yoga practice. Um, and so if we do that deep diving without that understanding, we can easily get stuck and we can end up in situations where we have all of these lovely tools, but we use them in harmful ways. Um, 
towards ourselves or to others. And, and that's where we get into the realm of things like spiritual bypassing and invalidation and cultural appropriation and, and this kind of thing. So I think understanding, you know, and kind of going back to, to what you mentioned um, about how yoga practitioners are already, you know, engaged in this process of understanding that there is no uh, achievement point. There's no point at which you've arrived. There's no end point. You're constantly on this journey that is going to be ebbing and flowing and you will make mistakes and you will lose certain abilities and you will gain things and abilities and knowledge. Um, and, you know, you may step away from your practice and you may step back towards it. A whole bunch of different trajectories are possible. And it's so similar to this process of unlearning or this process of engaging in social justice, um, which I, which reminds me of this, you know, piece that is so integral to folks, particularly for folks who are, you know, stepping into this with a lot of privilege, um, especially racial privilege for white folks and uh, white passing folks to understand that, you know, if they're genuinely engaging with, with this process, and genuinely sort of committing to unlearning, they will do harm on the way. They will make mistakes. Um, that is simply a part of it, right? And this is a, a realm where we're dealing with so much trauma, intergenerational trauma and current traumas um, that it's, it's quite impossible to avoid doing some kind of harm along the way. So what kind of process do you have internally set up to deal with the guilt and shame that can arise from doing harm when you don't mean to? What kind of process do you have within your community to ensure that folks are letting you know when you are doing harm and they feel safe letting you know that, that you're doing harm? And, and what kind of accountability processes do you have individually and in community for accounting for that harm, for shifting it, for making genuine and heartfelt commitments to not engaging in that same behavior again, or not having that same effect and impact again. Right. And I think we have a lot of those tools um, through, through a sort of practice of, of understanding different philosophies and teachings um, from the East and from other traditions. Yeah, I, I, I really like this acknowledgement of, hey, you're going to get it wrong, you know, and this is something that also comes up again in your yoga practice. Don't expect to do the posture right on the first time. Expect to fail over and over again, but keep going. And I also like this idea of um, the permission to learn and make mistakes along the way, because mm -hmm. I think that there are a lot of people who the moment, particularly white and white passing people, that the moment they kind of hear about racism or any sort of social injustice, they're immediately like, I just don't want to get it wrong. I just, I want to be a good person. I, I'm not a racist. I, I, of course I'm not a racist. And then, and then they're in this space of, I don't want to say or do anything because I don't want to get it wrong. And then there's this fear that comes up, which is sort of twofold, I, I, at least two, but probably has many more layers. Um, you know, perhaps the idea just personally of I'm, I, I, you, you believe you're a good person and then you feel like, gosh, I want to do the right thing. And then the mm. second is this kind of fear of if I get it wrong, then there'll be public shaming and I'll be canceled from a community that I'm a part of. So, so there's this, there's at least two layers of 
I want to get it right for myself personally as an individual. And then if there's not a path of, of potential learning within a community to find this whole, you know, almost this, this is process towards growth rather than you're either, you either get it right from the beginning or you're ostracized and removed, then, then there's this space, you know, then, then again, it becomes a narrative of exclusion and of power. And I, I don't know if you've experienced this, but I, I almost feel like that begins to weaponize the tools of deconstruction and social justice to ends up making more divisions. And I rarely find that it is people of color who end up kind of wielding those, the, those, the, like the, those, those levers, which say now you're canceled and you're not, and who's there and who's not. It, it almost feels like a perpetuation of those who are already in power that seem to kind of weaponize words and embark in kind of a, a, a vicious circle of, of, of in and out and some sort of power reclamation. And this is kind of what I see in the social media space where, mm -hmm. whereas real learning as kind of, as you described, you're going to fail, you're going to fall, you're going to have feelings of guilt and shame. And there needs to be a community that's there to support you through the process, you know, and the, you know, the yoga community is, can be pretty intense in, in, you know, in the, in these spaces. And I don't know what are the main thoughts to, to unpack, you know, do you, is it, is it, is there, is there like a subliminal racism that needs to be unlearned? Is that the spiritual obstacle that's kind of nascent within the kind of dominant powers within the yoga community? Or are there some other blind spots that you can kind of, that you see in the work that you do that would be most beneficial to kind of shine light on the, the shadow side of the spiritual community? Yeah. Yeah. No, I appreciate a lot of what you said and, and just understanding fear as this extremely paralyzing quality um, through everything, right? Through everything that we've been talking about, um, fear and, and shame um, and, and guilt. And fear, I think, also of our intentions being, being uh, misconstrued. And I think that, that that balance between intention and impact is something that comes up a lot, particularly when we're thinking about questions of cancel culture. Um, uh, and yeah, um, I think it's extremely frustrating for the, for the person who messes up to have their intentions misconstrued or ignored in favor of centering the impact that their words or actions have had. Um, and I think it's likewise extremely frustrating for folks who have experienced the impacts of those words or actions um, to reckon with somebody who doesn't seem to be centering that. Um, so I think, you know, this is a really great space for non-attachment to come in um, for an understanding that, you know, it is possible to lose the favor of folks and for good reason. Um, and it's also possible um, for exactly what you said to, to be happening when it comes to, um, you know, the groups who are actually enacting, um, enacting the power, uh, when it comes to something like cancel culture, it is, it's, it's a reinscription of, of a lot of different things that are showing up in the yoga community, um, and the spiritual community because they are everywhere else as well, including racism, including white supremacy, including just the sort of, um, whiteness living on a pedestal far above all our heads. Um, 
But I think that the spiritual, quote unquote, spiritual community needs to sort of train its attention to those things, to spiritual bypassing, cultural appropriation, accessibility issues, all of these things that are being actively addressed in many ways by by many folks now. Um, But also, you know, creating a culture that can honor these teachings of these traditions um, while also acknowledging the ways in which structural injustice has made its way into those teachings and histories. And um, so creating that culture and, and hopefully opening a forum for critique to be possible, for radically honest communication to be possible, for unlearning to happen, for relearning to happen, um, for folks to understand these communities as not somehow uh, distant from or not a part of the rest of the world and the way in which it's operating and has operated for a very long time. Um, Just because folks are spiritual does not mean that white supremacy doesn't exist in these spaces, right? Uh, Just because most people in in this space have good intentions does not mean that all of the impact in the space is good. So I think the creation of that kind of culture is is what's lacking in a big way. but all of all of the usual isms that we encounter everywhere else in our lives are going to be present in this community as well. The way that they show up is going to be a bit different. How we handle them is going to have to be a bit different. Um, and you know, as we've said over and over in in this conversation, like there are some incredibly potent tools from these traditions that we engage with on a daily basis as practitioners. Um, and so it can get real dicey out there when those tools are are being used um, to consolidate and maintain power because they're very very effective tools mm-hmm. uh, in in doing any number of things including that right um, which I think is is hard for some folks to uh, for many folks to reckon with that you know, tools that can be so mm, freeing and beautiful and enlightening and so community building in many ways um, and so helpful can also be used for harm. Um, It's very difficult to, to reckon with that, I think on an individual level and a collective level within the community. Do you feel like there needs to be maybe an interplay between responsibility from the individual level versus the collective level? And how does that, like, how do those two different levels kind of play off of each other to really address what are often systemic issues in both society and, and within, within the individual? Yeah. Um, I think everything is sort of simultaneously needing to be done on a collective and individual level. I kind of like often return to this idea of simultaneity because I don't think that there is a, a sort of determined or necessary trajectory in the individual and collective work that we engage in um, just that it needs to happen all at once. And I think there are folks who are, you know, and for very good reason of the, you know, you put your own oxygen mask on before you do it for another person mindset. And there are folks for whom community work and care must come first and above all else. Um, and in my own experience, professional and personal, it, without the simultaneity, everything lacks, like everything is not quite what it could be. Um, and on, in other words, I think we need to all be doing our own 
self-work and our self-care and our self-inquiry and our self-development and get in, on our own mats in our own heads with our own particular tools. Um, and we have to be doing these things in community uh, while acting as a support, as part of a support network for others, uh, allowing and welcoming support others have to give us uh, gently as often as possible and mindfully offering critique, mindfully receiving critique. Um, I don't think that, I don't think that it's necessarily a healthy or sustainable way to do this work to, to focus on or prioritize the individual or focus on or prioritize the collective at, at any given time. Is that always a sort of practical or, or, or a way that we are able to think? No. I mean, sometimes it is going to feel like we have to, to prioritize the individual or the collective, that we can't do everything at once. But I think that's our challenge to, you know, as the amazing and creative and inventive and innovative beings that we are, figure out ways to do those things simultaneously. And I think that, you know, that we have models of that. We've lost a lot of them to this history, right? Um, and this widening of history and this coloniality of history. Um, and I think that there are a lot of, you know, indigenous practices that we can return to that do that balance really well, do that simultaneity really well, um, that under, that, you know, promote an understanding of the self as intrinsically a part of the community and a part of the environment and all of these things, right? And so I think if we try to, to work ourselves back to that mindset or inhabit that new mindset of that simultaneity of collective and individual, then maybe we've got a shot at some pretty wonderful change or the sustainability of some of the wonderful change that is already happening. Um, but it's difficult. It's another sort of uh, site of rewiring our, our brains because we're all within these, you know, capitalists and, and white supremacist systems, um, global in nature now, that encourage individual, individualism at all costs, right? Um, and so it's very hard to break from that, even with all of these wonderful tools that we have through these traditions and teachings um, that, are, that are so accessible now. So if people want to, say, continue doing the work or start doing the work of unlearning, how can they get in contact with you um, to, to continue their journey? Yeah, uh, through my website is a, is a good start. Um, unlearnproject.com, U-N-L-R-N-P-R-J-C-T.com. Um, or through my email, row at unlearnproject.com. Uh, or through you, I'm sure folks can contact you and get to me somehow. Um, I'm also on social media and all of these things as well. Um, but I also encourage folks to, you know, certainly welcome to welcome to work with me in whatever way. But, um, you know, think about who you can support in your community. Think about Indigenous resources who you can support um, in whatever particular um, place in the world that you're in. Um, think about, you know, how you can be a part of your local and, and other forms of community um, simultaneously to doing work with somebody like me. Um, 
and just in general. So, yeah. Super. Well, thank you so much for this very enlightening conversation and for sharing so eloquently and openly and just giving all of your heart to the work you do in the world as well. Of course, we want to invite everyone to join us for the Ashtanga Intersections Exploring Racism as a Spiritual Obstacle panel. So there'll be information about that. Uh, please, everyone, come and dive deeper into the conversation. Ro, you'll be moderating the panel discussion with some really uh, really, really awesome panelists who will be joining with their unique perspectives in this discussion. So we just uh, thank everyone for tuning in, for continuing to do the work, and we hope to see you really soon. Thank you, Kino, and thank you, everybody who's, who's listening. And please do join us. Hey there, it's Kino here. I just wanted to thank you for tuning in to my podcast. Your support and your time and your attention really mean a lot to me. If you're enjoying this podcast series, you can find the full-length videos on my online channel, OMSTARS, and that's at www.omstars.com. You can redeem a 14-day free trial and get access to our full library of over 3,000 classes and also practice yoga with me online. I'd also love to see you in class sometime. So you can find my full live in-person teaching schedule on my website, which is kinoyoga.com. And if you haven't checked out my books, I'd absolutely be honored if you'd check those out. You can find those available at any online bookseller. The Yoga Inspiration Podcast is designed to keep you inspired to get on the mat. And I hope you're leaving each episode with a little glimmer and spark of the spirit which is the true heart of the yoga method. Thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. May you be happy. May you be peaceful. May you be filled with love. Namaste.